either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Pretty busy week of new releases, and we're glad you're here to run them down with us. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And we are from madwolf.com. We'll start off on Netflix. A director and his girlfriend's relationship is tested after they return home from his movie premiere and await critics' responses. This is Malcolm and Marie. How dare you? All I wanted tonight was thank you, Malcolm. That is it. You know that I'm thankful. You know that I made a mistake. So why turn it into something more? Because it's about how you see this relationship. Look at me. I'm the last person standing. I don't care you. Hold on to me for dear life. And that is the entirety of the character list. There's Malcolm and there's Marie. That, that's that's it. You would think that, or you, you could easily see how this one could have been a play first, but it wasn't. This is written and directed by Sam Levinson, Barry Levinson's son. And uh, it's it's really interesting because once these these two get home from the big movie premiere, and like it says, like the synopsis said, start waiting on the critics' responses, they just dig into each other about many things, about their relationship, about film, about film criticism. And it's driven by these two performances by John David Washington and Zendaya, and they're both very good. They are. Zendaya also produces, and she, you know, she, I've never seen her show, Euphoria, and, and, and I've, I've always heard that she's spectacular on and it. I, but I guess Sam Levinson yes. is from that show as well. Yeah. well I haven't watched They've it either. They've worked together on I'm, that. I've, I've heard great things about her performance in it. I think right. she won... Maybe an Emmy for it? or uh, so, Anyway. We're bad with TV. We are, but she's good. Let's she's put it. <laughs> great. She is, she's really, really good in this movie, and and, uh, and so is Washington, and they have a great rapport. And uh, the film, as you say, I mean, it would be easy to think of this, to see this as a play, but the film itself is so cinematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Levinson frames things so gorgeously. And it's in black and white. It is. It's really fantastic. Like, yeah, uh, just a crystal clean black and white. It's such a beautiful movie and to look setting, at. And the setting, the house where they're, well, he eventually says that the production company set them up in this house. Right. What a house. Holy moly. Yeah. And the grounds around oh, it. Oh, yeah. Just a fantastic setting, like you say. And the production design is great. And the uh, the black and white cinematography, fantastic. It's gorgeous. I think it has two things going for it in terms of the story. I mean, first of all, these great performances really help. The story itself, the fight, has there's a lot of sort of universal truth to that, right? They, they went to this, the premiere... And he thought, thanked everybody, and he forgot to thank her. Mm-hmm. So he's coming home. It's the biggest night of his life. It's his, it's, his, it's his filmmaking debut. It premiered. It seemed like everybody loved it. Biggest night of his life. And she's just pissed. Mm-hmm. And they have to fight their way to middle ground. Like, he wants <laughs> to celebrate, and she's just pissed. Yep. And, so, uh, and so the film has them just knock about, you know, just you know, angry. Not physically knock about, but angry with each other. It goes back and forth. It ebbs and flows. You know, um, Then you think they're making up, and... And they're they're gonna really make up, and then you're like, don't say anything else, don't say anything else, right. and they do. And it's funny how how well the film plays on what what people who've ever had fights know, you know, like like don't leave the room right now because now she's just gonna think till you get back, yeah. you know. And and it felt very honest in a certain way. But then the other thing that's interesting is that it's set in a world that very few people know or recognize. And so there's also this glamour about it that you're like fascinated with. But at the same time, it is something that clearly Levinson knows quite well. So there's a lot of conversation about often a lot of kind of 
There's a lot of conversation about authenticity in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot about film criticism. Yep. And there's a lot about stealing people's lives for your own art. There's a lot of, of philosophical debate that you find within film that is just on the surface of this, what I, that I personally found fascinating. Oh, yeah, there's definitely meta stuff going on here. In fact, at one point early on, and I'm glad this didn't happen, I thought, boy, if this at the end ends up being a, a movie within a movie, you know, that yep. the movie that they're watching in the premiere, it didn't, thankfully, because that would have been really cheesy. But there's a lot of meta stuff here about filmmaking. One of the other things I thought was interesting, I mean, and I would, I'm not sure how many other people are going to find this fascinating, but it was the way he rips into the film critic, because I think that that happens very often in when, when, when somebody includes a film critic in a movie, very often seems to me to be less of a, of a real narrative device and more of an opportunity for a filmmaker to vent. Mm-hmm. One of the things I appreciated about it in, in this film, she's not physically present, she's just sort of she, the, critic, you know, the yeah. critic, is that it means something within the context of the film. The movie is really about you, to grow, you have to be able to accept critique, mm-hmm. right? And and the film critic is just one very superficial way of getting to that. What they're really talking about is is collaborating and growing with with your partner. Yeah. But I thought that it was um, an ingenious way to just take it uh, another step and at the same time let Levinson bitch about film critics. <laughs> and he also gives both characters and both actors here a chance to have their moments. I mean, even when one character is making a good point, making some real salient points, then the other side gets their say and they make good points as well. And it's back and forth and back and forth. The problem is it just tends to go on too long. When a speech gets to a point, to its its natural ending point, like to feel, use that word, authentic, and then it just goes a little bit longer. Yep. That starts to wear thin, especially when the night drags on. And <laughs> and as, as also, as you said earlier, the, the characters kind of show their younger age because we're both like, we'd have gone to bed. Oh, yeah. We just said, all right, we're going to sleep We're now. done. We're done. Because <laughs> by the time they're into this, it's three in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that is, I mean, as I'm watching it, at, at a certain point, I just I was thinking that. Just, just go to bed. Just go to bed. And I, I think that it's hard. it's hard to escape. The yeah. film drags it out. It drags it out for too long. I think it's a it's an admirable attempt yeah. and it's a gorgeous just gorgeous movie. With solid performances, and, yeah. And the writing is really very solid, too. Uh, as you were saying, there, it's never one-dimensional. You mm-hmm. know, it really picks apart interesting ideas and the conversations, but they just go on too long to the point where they feel written. And, and a little indulgent. Yeah, yeah The part definitely. of the goes on. Yeah. But, uh, but still, interesting, uh, interesting and provocative and you know, has some good things to say all the way around, an equal time to different points of view. And as you say, being able to accept criticism, not just in art, no. but in, in your personal relationships, too. And that's on Netflix now, Malcolm and Marie. Let's do a little sci-fi next. A mind-bending love story following Greg, who, after recently being divorced and then fired, meets the mysterious Isabel, a woman living on the streets and convinced that the polluted, broken world around them is a computer simulation. This is bliss. You see all these people outside? They're not real. This is a simulation. You ready? There's my guy. Welcome home. This place is overwhelming. Dr. Isabel Clemens pioneered brain box simulations. Ugly, simulated worlds to generate appreciation for the real world. Now why am I not remembering any of this? Don't worry about it. Here I go. Most people say ignorance is bliss. But I say you have to experience the good to appreciate the bad. 
and on the other way around. Exactly. Simulation theory is uh, popular this week. It and is. We'll, we'll get to another film about that in a little bit. But Bliss is out now. It's Amazon, Amazon streaming. And it's the latest from Mike Cahill. He's a writer-director who did a, a movie I really like from, I think, 2011, maybe, called Another Earth. Right. And it's funny because it deals in some of the th- same themes of different worlds and duality and, and shuffling between two different possible existences. But this one, yeah, definitely about simulation theory. And uh, Salma is convinced and tries to convince him that he's real, she's real, but everything else, no, nah, not so much. And there are times when I think it works because really for the film, simulation simulation theory it's just a metaphor it's a it's a lengthy metaphor that he's using throughout the film and i think for a to to a pretty good degree successfully i think he used it successfully for the most part um and there's a there's a certain scene where the two of them go roller skating and they're having the time of their lives had it ended at the end of that scene, it would have made a spectacular short film. Oh, yeah, I can you know, see that. Yeah. I loved that scene. That scene was so well-constructed, and it said so much. Or and even that, the scene where he messes with that car that's following them. Yeah. That's pretty cool, too. But, she teaches him how to manipulate the quote-unquote fake world around them. And he is plagued by these sort of memories, like he sketches a home and a person that he doesn't really remember, but they're entrenched in his brain, and that starts down the road to him believing that, yeah, maybe this this is true, and I have another existence in this other unsimulated world. Uh, the, my, my problem with the movie, and as much as I like Owen Wilson, as much as I like Salma Hayek in so many different things, the both of them in this just kind of felt out of place. They kind of felt miscast. You know, again, in the in the first part of the film, I think the filmmaker played with that, played with your preconceived notions that the two of these guys, they're going to be in a movie that's going to be a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that roller rink scene in particular did a nice job of introducing how discordant a notion that that was with the facts of this film. Because it isn't a comedy at all. No, it's a very no. dark film. Yeah. And an examination of a lot of things, none of which are, are simulation theory. But but they did feel, Owen Wilson in particular to me, felt by the end just miscast. He did. It just reminded me so much of his character in Midnight in Paris, mm-hmm. a guy who is going between one world and another, and which one is going to draw him? Which one is he going to feel most... Compelled at, by. At, compelled by, exactly. So uh, I think it's a, a good swing, swing and kind of a miss here. There yeah. are a lot of good sci-fi ideas. Um, uh, but when it gets down to it, especially when it finally rolls around toward the end, it just it just kind of fizzles out yeah. and, and just plagued by as good as these two performers can be and have been, and yeah. I'm sure will be again, here it just didn't seem like the right project for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's streaming now called Bliss. Next up is a foreign film. Nina and Madeline have hidden their deep and passionate love for many decades, but their bond is put to the test when they are suddenly unable to move freely between each other's apartments. It's two of us. Partez où j'appelle la police Dégagez Regarde-moi. Now this one just got a Golden Globe domination for Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah, and well-deserved. It's a lovely film, and we just I think just last week we talked about Supernova, right? Yeah. This was, was two older men that were in a relationship for, for many, many years, having to deal with mortality, but it, that one just seems so familiar. This one does not. No. This yeah. one takes another approach, and it's just lovely, and it's it's driven by the two lead performances, Barbara Sukawa, who is Nina, fantastic, and Martine Chevalier, as uh, Madeline, or Maddo, as they call her. 
the plan is for Maddo to finally tell her grown son and daughter the truth, that even when she was married to their father, this woman, Nina, was her, her always her true love, and they're going to sell their apartments, they're right across the hall from each other, and move to Rome. And Maddo just can't get the courage to come out to her family, which makes Nina furious. Uh, and as the, the plan is up in the air, uh, Maddo suffers a stroke. And then she cannot communicate at all, and the family overruns her apartment with caregivers and, and you know, they're doting on her, obviously, because she needs, she needs help. And now Nina is frozen out. Yep. She's frozen out of her world, and all she has to connect to that world is the peephole. And the director, the, the co-writer and director here, I believe it's his debut feature, Filippo Meneghetti, does a real great job in, just case in point, that peephole becoming such a device to just symbolize what their relationship is now. Nina is just yearning to travel across that short hallway, but mm-hmm. now the distance is so great because Maddo's family doesn't realize the place right. in, in that, that Nina plays in Maddo's life. And their roles reverse because you can tell that Maddo is now silent. She cannot speak, but she wants to now. She, she wants she, desperately she to wants tell them. She wants desperately to let them know that you've got to let her over here into my life. And whereas Nina, who was much more of a free spirit, much more didn't care who, who knew, about uh, her life and how she was. She now has to make up lies and stories to get past Maddo's grown daughter to get in there and help with her care. And so the two the, the two actresses, especially when they make that switch in their characters, are just fantastic. Right. And it's, it's, it's just a lovely, lovely film about the power of togetherness. I will say the one chink in the armor, one of the, the stories, the schemes that Nina has to come up with makes her run afoul of the grown son of the caregiver that is hired to come in. And that leads to a plot device that is really overdone and so, so predictable that I'm not going to mention. But by the time the movie wraps up, you kind of forgive them. It's a lovely film. It is very much deserving of that nomination. I hope it gets more with two tremendous performances and a great debut feature for this filmmaker, a great story about not only and and also we we should mention that these women are older, right? And so these actresses get fantastic chance yeah. that you don't see a lot, no, right? To play these older, such complex, interesting older female characters, right? And boy, they don't disappoint. Uh, and it's just a great, uh, touching, gentle movie about the power of togetherness. And uh, highly recommend that called Two of Us. Well, let's go back to simulation theory for a documentary. As Rodney Asher tackles the question, are we living in a simulation with testimony, philosophical evidence, and scientific explanation in his hunt for the answer? This is a glitch in the Matrix. We are living in a simulation. We are being inhabited by some sort of player. It's a game. A world without rules and controls. What's the point of all this? Everyone is fake. I am not a body at all. I am the code. I am a string of numbers constantly replicating in some vibration. None of this is real. I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. Well, as soon as you say the name Rodney Asher, we're interested. Oh, yeah. Because he did Room 237, the Shining documentary. So great. And then he did The Nightmare. One of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And it's a documentary. The Sleep Paralysis documentary will scare you to the bone. (laughs) And And now he takes on simulation theory 
fascinating. It's such an interesting movie. And, uh, you know, as it opens, you meet, via their avatars, a handful of people who will be talking heads, although you never see them. They are their avatars. The one guy has kind of a, a sunburst head, and the other guy kind of looks like a some sort of a space alien kind of a bluggity thing. What, and, uh, what was that sound? <laughs> I don't know you how just you made? spell that. But, um, <laughs> uh, and, and they talk about simulation theory. And as it opens up, you're thinking, do people really, I mean, for real? And then they show Elon Musk, who of course believes in it. And then they talk to the the person who wrote simulation theory, like back in the 90s. And he explains, he came up with the theory and he, and he explains, you know, the rationale behind it, the logic behind it, the math behind it. And you're like, oh God. Um, and then most fascinatingly, they jump back to lot to footage uh, shot in like 1977 uh, Philip K. Dick, of course. The esteemed science fiction writer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Blade Runner and yeah. Man in the High Tower. And I mean, just on, on, on the standard on. Arkley. It's so many, so many um, incredibly groundbreaking uh, sci-fi novels. And he's addressing a group of people in Paris in 1977 who have come to hear him talk about his work. And he doesn't. He talks about essentially simulation theory. There was no term for it then. He simply was saying he believed they all lived in this, in what is simulation theory. Amazing. amazing. I could have watched just that. You know, uh, not just him talking because it was fascinating, but the reaction he was getting from this crowd of people who thought they was going to talk about, you know, a scanner darkly or something. I bet. It was amazing. It's that face we made when we show up. To see Todd Rundgren, and he plays no songs that anyone's ever heard of. Exactly. Same face. Very close to that face. Love you, Todd. (laughs) (laughs) But just as things begin to get a little bit tedious and borderline superficial, like, okay, we get it. These people believe in simulation theory. The film takes a turn where these people start talking about, you know, what I tell other people that we're living in a simulation. And these other, this other man says to me, well, what, what is to keep me from just opening that door and shooting everybody inside? And the person who believes in believes we are living in a simulation says, was that the only thing that's keeping you from murdering people? And right at that conversation, the movie takes a, a very fascinating, interesting, sometimes terrifying turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it becomes really a psychological study. And and there's a participant who, who joins the conversation about that time and sort of begins to take over the, the narrative. And it's it's riveting. It's powerful. It's sad. It's terrifying. And it, and it made the film worth seeing. Not just some sort of a yeah. flight of fancy, look how crazy these people are, but a really profoundly interesting and, I think, insightful documentary. And we got to see this as part of the virtual Sundance Film Festival mm-hmm. last week. So as far as seeing it now... It's just streaming. You can get it anywhere. Amazon, wherever you get uh, VOD. Perfect. A glitch in the Matrix. Very cool. Next is a based-on-true-events story set in Montgomery, Alabama. A Klansman's grandson must choose which side of history to be on during the Civil Rights Movement. It's Son of the South. You want to jeopardize your whole life for some grand principle? Isn't that what they're doing? Some of these old boys around here, they really mean to do you some harm. Well, I bet you ain't happy you came to Montgomery now, boy. So what's going to happen next? You got to draw the line somewhere. You stop right now. They're going to kill him. There's going to come a time when something really bad happens, and you're going to have to decide which side you're on. Not choosing is a choice. We got sent the opportunity, right, this link to this, and I, I watched the trailer and said, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, George, yeah. you want to do it? I just thought I couldn't make it, but you were kind of impressed by it. Well, I, I kind of had a 
to wrestle with myself over how I was going to view this film because of the way it's told, and I eventually convinced myself that that was on purpose for a real good reason. This is co-writer and director Barry Alexander Brown. He's worked a lot as an editor with Spike Lee, and Spike Lee is an executive producer here, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I convinced myself... Gave that, it the benefit of the doubt. The, the, ...the track they're taking is on purpose because it's based on the autobiography of Bob Zellner, who was... I think it was, he was the first white field um, assistant or, or field coordinator for one of the factions of the civil rights movement and did a lot with the movement, um, and, uh, and God bless him for it. So right there, it's got the point of view of a white man because it's based on the experiences of a white man. And the message, the clear message here is for white people, even quote-unquote well-meaning white people, to get off the sidelines. Yep. That's the your intentions are not worth anything if they're left on the sidelines. So that's the message. That's who it who it's aimed at. So when the film starts to feel like the blind side, that sort of storytelling, it kind of made sense because the movie, the message is is most needed to be heard by a lot of people who are still inspired by The Blind Side. So as opposed to a movie like The Blind Side, like The Help, where the, the final sort of idea is, thank God for white people, <laughs> yeah. this one is like, no, 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 you have to do something. Right. So on one hand, the narrative suffers, but at the same time, it felt right for the story, for the point of view, for the message here, and who it's trying to reach. So that's the, the kind of argument I had with myself, that I ended up giving it the benefit of the doubt. For, for doing what they're doing. You could call it playing it safe, but I couldn't I couldn't call it dumb. But on the other hand, what you're saying makes sense because anytime you make any art, not for the sake of art, but uh, you know, as a message, right. the art suffers. Yeah. You know, I mean, Spike Lee's films have definitely a political message. They have, uh, you know, activism at their heart, but I don't think that's ever, he's never set out, I don't think, I wouldn't know, obviously, but I've never gotten the impression that he set out to make a statement. He just simply makes art, and there is a statement in there because he's a genius. It stars Lucas Till, who is the new MacGyver, and he was uh, one of the new X-Men, I forget the name now, uh, and he's totally fine. Everybody in the, the cast here is fine, but it's such a surface-level film. Nobody yeah. really gets the chance to make a great impression. Uh, Lucy Hale is his fiance. Brian Dennehy... Right, and one of his last and performances. one of his last is the just hatefully racist grandfather who, uh, boy, makes doesn't sugarcoat anything about the stakes once he finds out that his son, his grandson, is fraternizing, so to speak. So uh, the cast is fine, but not exceptional. Everything about it is just that very surface-level uh, effectiveness. And, yeah. and there are some definitely good juxtapositions here with um, with some of the experiences of Zellner compared with the African-American people who who are coordinating these these protests and are getting beaten right. and getting killed. Right. Um, and uh, Cedric the Entertainer uh, pops up as Reverend Ralph Abernathy's and Julia Ormond. So there's going to be some people in the cast that you recognize. And actually, I think the best performance in the movie, uh, Shamir Anderson, has a smaller part as a guy who is also working in the civil rights movement, and he just doesn't trust Zellner uh, as far as he could throw him. And he, he's, I think, is probably the best uh, performance in the movie in, in a smaller part, so I just want to give him a shout-out, too. But it's just that type of filmmaking that I think is not great on a narrative level, but for the type of movie this is and the message that it's saying and who most needs to hear it, I think it felt right. Okay. And that's Son of the South.
Let's go animated next. This one follows an orphan girl, Earwig, who is adopted by a witch and comes home to a spooky house filled with mystery and magic. Earwig and the witch. Now then, let's you and I get a few things straight. My name is Bella Yaga. I'm a witch. Great! You agree that you'll teach me magic, and I agree to help you out. In this household, there's one rule that's crucial. You must on no account for any reason ever dare disturb the Mandrake. Don't be rude. I'll be learning magic. Well, so I was told. Can't wait to start. Hey, who remembers that anime classic from uh, Miyazaki, Kiki's Delivery Service? I know you do. I surely do. <laughs> it's this adorable, two-dimensional, hand-drawn, glorious anime story about a little witch in training and her talking black cat. And Goro Miyazaki kind of made the same movie, only worse. <laughs> yeah. Black cat and all. Yeah. It's not the traditional animation. You know, it's that CG animation, more like uh, Pixar, mm -hmm. only not done well. And I mean, not as striking, not nearly as striking. Not at all. It's it's very boldly colored. It doesn't have any soul to it. It doesn't have any humanity to it. And this, But the biggest thing is not, although that's going to, anybody who is really, this is Studio Ghibli, any Studio Ghibli fan is going to be, I think, irritated by the animation style itself. But the biggest problem is simply in storytelling. You know, it starts off in one direction. It drops you for the majority of the film in the least interesting possible storyline and then it picks up the interesting storyline in the last scene of the movie yeah. it just doesn't seem to know what it's doing none of the characters are, partic are particularly interesting and i was just really disappointed yeah it's too bad and that is on hbo max and also theatrical uh this weekend called earwig and the witch let's do a drama fantasy next a line of women pass a recurring dream through multiple generations this is called the wanting mare can you see it now If you're not going to get me across, then you just have to forget me. I'll forget you. You forget me. Am I ever going to see you again? That's a great title, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I like it. It's a good title for a sci-fi kind of a film, and that's what this is. It's a, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic tale. It doesn't, they don't give you much of a sense of what has happened to, to put these people in the lives they're living, but there is uh, one island that is hot and dusty and not very densely populated, and then someplace far away is an island that they believe is better and it snows all the time, and they want to get over there, but the boat only goes once a year because people catch wild horses and take them to the mainland. So it's very tough to get a ticket, and that's really what the movie is about. It's about it's a couple generations of people who want a ticket, Mm -hmm. uh, it is a dreamscape of a film. It's really beautifully conceptualized. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Very poetic, very slow moving. It really doesn't ever try to explain much about itself. It's about yearning, about longing, about place, about gender. It's gorgeous, and it just doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> the Wanting Mare. Lots of world building, but not much else. Streaming now. Let's check in with Shudder for an adaptation of the novel Frankenstein as told through the life of Mary Shelley. As she creates her masterpiece, she gives birth to a monster. A nightmare wakes. Someone tell me a ghost story. Scare us. I wish to tremble. I feel like it's a story. My story. Frankenstein. I never knew you had such darkness in you. It's already there. I must simply unleash it. 
you're a monster, Mary. I am not mad. I choose this. Doesn't sound very scary yet. It is. Well, this is yet another treatment on the making of Frankenstein. This one by writer-director Nora Uncle. Yeah, there was one actually just a couple of years ago yeah. called Mary Shelley with Elle Fanning. Right. And um, and it did a better job. It was closer to doing what I think this movie is trying to do, which is to say that Frankenstein was almost autobiographical. That's really the point they're making, that her life with Percy Shelley was so damaging that she became a monster. And that this movie just doesn't do it very well. It's not very interesting. It's blandly put together in, visually. And also the lead, Alex Wilton Reagan, She's not very compelling, she's not very interesting, and she's also at least 10 years too old to play this character. It's not something I normally point out, but one of the most fascinating and unbelievable things about Mary Shelley is that she wrote that and that came out when she was 18. That is, yes, it you is know, And I just don't think you can, you can skirt past that because the fact that she was 18 also had a lot to do with why she made terrible decisions in her personal life, <laughs> right? And so, you know, the whole movie has a weird skew once you sort of put this person in, well into her adulthood, and then she just seems needy and whiny. So I I was disappointed. A Nightmare Wakes is now on Shudder. Speaking of disappointed, how about the story of Evelyn, a young widow haunted by the recent suicide of her husband Joseph, is falsely accused of being a witch by her landlord after she rejects his advances. This is the reckoning... <laughs> Fear not, my child. Salvation is at hand. There's something wicked at work in that place. She has the devil inside her. My will is greater than yours. Rosie. Oh. Yeah, the most memorable thing about this is the director is Neil Marshall, who has done, well, we love The Descent. We really like Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, this is, I had a really hard time getting through it. This is terrible. Yeah. It, Just yeah. terrible. It was hard to watch the whole thing. It really was. You know, and there are some things about it that are great. It looks good. The atmosphere is created while there are some really great and interesting shots, but it's set in the time of the Black Plague. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you get a, a close-up of a woman in her humble thatch roof house you know, uh, and she's just got the most, the first thing you notice is her perfect makeup because everybody else looks like people who live during the Black Plague. And then all of a sudden, this pristine makeup, and that is all that happens is the lead in this film poses. She poses in, and she yep. is in every scene. Yeah, you she, never get away from her. She's so bad. Charlotte Kirk is the lead actress. She's also listed as a co-writer and this just totally smacks of a vanity project. Yes, it does. It's awful. It really is awful. And then the sort of witch torture I mean, it's such a tired genre if you don't have anything new to bring to it and this really doesn't. It just sexualizes torture and yet the woman who's being tortured, her her nude lip liner never smears. It's so annoying. <laughs> and bad. The Reckoning. And one more, we don't normally mention short films, but we'll make an exception here. In 1969, the astronauts of Apollo 11 returned to Earth, but their mission wasn't over. This is Apollo 11 Quarantine. We've been seeing the quarantine procedures instituted to protect us from any harmful life from the moon and to protect any piece of life that might exist from being destroyed by our contamination. 
And this is, I guess you'd call it an epilogue to one of our favorite movies from 2019? Yeah, I think so. The documentary Apollo 11. Just a living, breathing piece of history, especially if you got to see the IMAX version. It just blew both of us away. Yes, it was well, glorious. This one is from the same director, Todd Douglas Miller. And it's about a 25-minute just epilogue, just about what the synopsis says. After the astronauts got back to Earth, they had to stay in quarantine for 21 days. So it just picks up the story there. Again, fascinating. We didn't get to see this on IMAX. There is an IMAX version out there in selected theaters. I would love to, but still, it's tremendous. The, 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 the footage is has been restored so gloriously. You just feel, just like the first one, you feel like you're just right there. Yep. And it ends with Buzz Aldrin's speech before Congress um, talking about how he hopes that the hopeful message of them getting to the moon and the promise that it holds for all mankind will be realized in future generations. And you realize we still have a long way to go <laughs> to get there. But especially if you've seen um, the full-length version, this is so, so worth it. And if you haven't seen either one of them, I'd say look both of them, them up, especially yes. if you're interested in history at all, because fantastic. And that's Apollo 11 Quarantine. All right, let's check in with the schlocketeer in the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. We're back in the lobby to get updates on the always changing movie schedule from Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the <laughs> schlocketeer. What's moving around this week? Shockingly, nothing has moved and nothing has been delayed this week, at least. Um, <laughs> Warner Brothers has announced a... May 14th release date for Taylor Sheridan's Those Who Wish Me Dead. That'll hit theaters and HBO Max on that day. Nice! M. Night Shyamalan's next film, Old, is set for a July 23rd release, and we should actually be getting our first teaser for that during the Super Bowl this weekend. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you're legally allowed to say Super Bowl. I'll have to check the lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sony has set their Resident Evil reboot for a September 3rd release. Yay. Are you excited? No. No, no, we're not. I can't, I can't say. I mean, I've, I've tried, but I just have never really been able to get behind that franchise. You can you can be excited for all of us. <laughs> I'm not sure my excitement's that high either. <laughs> but anyway, Universal has also set a September 24th release for their Broadway musical adaptation, Dear Evan Hansen. Oh. Now, beyond that... There's a couple other things going on. Of course, the MGM sale is still ongoing, but right now the apparent frontrunners are Amazon and Apple. Apparently, a couple of the regular studios have floated a tiny bit of interest, but the only ones that are aggressively pursuing it are streaming services. So we might finally end up see, seeing a streaming service buy an old Hollywood studio. Because they'll not be having to hold a bake sale to try to come up with the funds. <laughs> right. There's another interesting wrinkle that hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's just kind of an ongoing new problems popping up due to all of the COVID postponement. There is a rumor circulating that all of the product placement companies that were involved with the James Bond movie No Time to Die, some of them are wanting the film to be digitally altered because they've already replaced the products that are featured within it uh, with sure. the next version. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. If I had to guess, it'll just be minor uh, digital inserts of you know new phones and new watches and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> but it could be an interesting thing that could end up happening for a lot of different films. Yeah. But yeah. James Bond in particular, because there's so much product placement and tie-in deals. I yeah. mean, the movie's already in the black and it still hasn't come out yet because yeah, of all the product placement that, that's deals. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. That is really amazing. 
that's just another interesting, like you said, a wrinkle that you never really thought of. But then when it's brought up, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah that makes, makes sense. total sense. And then I've got one more thing that I found exciting. It was more of a uh, quiet movie announcement. Viggo Mortensen has stated that he, if all goes well, he will be shooting a new film with David Cronenberg this summer and that it is a horror-tinged film noir. So we might be seeing Cronenberg getting back into his old roots again. Cannot even tell you. That's exciting. Cannot even tell you how much exciting that is. I know. (laughs) Bring that on. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, Daniel Baldwin, you can always find him at The Schlocketeer. Thanks for the knowledge. Thanks for having me. All right, looking ahead to next week. Uh, right now, not as busy, but stay tuned. I think seems like a lot of them on here, I think. <laughs> Starting with the one we're most excited about, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, hearing great things about that. Great, great things. Also, Minari is uh, finally going to be out. And Land, which we got to see at Sundance. Loved it. Yeah, that is the directorial debut for Robin Wright. Also, let me help me pronounce this one. The, the Mauritanian? The Mauritanian. Okay. Also, a couple of Golden Globe nominations for that one. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. No Golden Globes for that one. No. This, you know what? This has the look of something that could be a complete train wreck or it could be hilarious. Yeah, I love the trailer. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, the World to Come. Sator. And Paradise Cove. There might be more. There usually are, so we'll see then. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything this week. Boy, a lot to choose from. Uh, A lot of varied stuff. So uh, keep the conversation going if you can. We always love that. You can find us easily on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can get all of our written reviews as well as our uh, other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. All that is found at madwolf.com. So until next week, keep in touch. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>